You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. The text for this morning's sermon is Mark 9, 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah for he did not know what to say for they were terrified and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son listen to him and suddenly looking around they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only and as they were coming down the mountain he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we gather week after week to behold the glory of Christ. So I I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would actively work, that you would attend to the preaching of the word this morning, while I always feel inadequate to the task of preaching. Uh, especially so this morning, given what the text is about. So, Holy Spirit, in spite of all of my limitations, would you give us eyes to behold the glorious Christ? Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my nephews is in his first week of recruit training for the United States Marine Corps. Uh, My brother sent out an update to our family yesterday, letting us know what the next few days will hold. According to my brother, in the next couple of days, my nephew will be assigned a drill instructor and will then commence with further training. Now, I don't know this for sure, But I would imagine that my nephew will quickly learn that his drill instructor's voice 
is the most important voice in his life, at least for the next many weeks. In the midst of everything else he's learning and the intense training that he'll be engaged in, one of the most basic, basic skills he'll need to learn is to listen to the voice of his drill instructor and then do whatever he says. In fact, while I was doing a little research, I found an article written for those who are preparing to leave for basic training. And here's one of the tips offered. Quote, basic training is not the time for creative thinking. <laughs> you can trust there will be time for that later in your military career, but this is not it. This is the time to follow your instructor's instructions as instructed. The article goes on to say recruits in training are expected to uniformly learn and do as quickly and efficiently as possible. Listen to what they're saying. Follow instructions and then repeat as necessary. Learn and do. Listen and obey. Friends, there is a real sense in which this is the primary lesson of our text today. Except the instructor, the instructor is the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, and all his instructions are perfect. In them you will find the way to eternal life and everlasting joy. So friends, this morning I want you to see Jesus, and I want you to hear him. I want you to behold Christ, and I want you to obey him. In Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, the scriptures record a most amazing and in some ways unusual encounter between Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. The event recorded by Mark is what's commonly called the transfiguration. It's obvious why that's the case. What is the point of this encounter? What is the master teacher, Jesus, aiming to teach his disciples and all of us? The transfiguration is a supernatural event divinely orchestrated to reveal the true identity of Jesus in such a way that the disciples' faith would deepen and their ears would open to hear and receive the teaching of Jesus concerning his death and resurrection. Let me say that again. The transfiguration is a supernatural event divinely orchestrated to reveal the true identity of Jesus in such a way that the disciples' faith would deepen and their ears would open to hear and receive the teaching of Jesus concerning his death and resurrection. Remember that up to this point, the disciples have been struggling to understand who Jesus is fully. And they've been struggling even more to grasp anything Jesus has said about his need to suffer and die and be raised to life. So again, Jesus takes his 
inner circle of disciples up to a high mountain, just the four of them, for a very memorable meeting. Look at verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 1 is connected to the conversation at the end of the previous chapter. So this could be confusing if you don't understand that. So if you remember what's happening there, Jesus is with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. When we walk through that final section of chapter 8 before Christmas, we boil down the conversation between Jesus and his disciples to three questions. Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? Or for the disciples looking ahead, what will Jesus do? And then finally, what is Jesus worth? In our study, we found out that the disciples were still unable to connect all the dots between the identity of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the value of Jesus. So it is those first two questions that Jesus is now returning to in the transfiguration. Who am I and what must I do? When Jesus says what he does in chapter 9, verse 1, he is simply referring to what Peter, James, and John will experience six days later on the high mountain referenced in verse 2. Notice the text again, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. So let's connect verse 1 and verse 2 and answer the question, what does it mean that they will see the kingdom of God after it has come in power? Here's what I believe this statement is referring to. In the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John get to see an unusually full display of the divine power and glory of Jesus, something that will not be seen again until Jesus appears after his resurrection and finally when he comes again as the reigning and ruling king forever. In other words, Peter, James, and John will behold on this mountain the very essence of the kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ. And they will see him as they have not seen him before. So let me offer you, with that in mind, let me offer you now three ways the true identity of Jesus is revealed in and through the event of the transfiguration. First, Jesus reveals his true identity as the glorious Christ. Jesus reveals his true identity as the glorious Christ. We see this primarily 
in verse 3. Notice the description of Jesus in verse 3. This is what it means that he was transfigured. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew adds to this description in his telling of the transfiguration, his face shone like the sun. It's fascinating as we consider how the text describes what's happening to Jesus to note that what we have translated as transfigured in verse 1, it's the Greek word metamorpheo. And it means to change in fashion or appearance. In fact, the, the instant that most of you heard me pronounce metamorpheo, you immediately thought of something you learned in elementary school science class, didn't you? You learned about a process called metamorphosis. Like when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It changes in fashion and appearance. R.C. Sproul explains how this connects to the transfiguration of Jesus. He writes, So Jesus underwent a transformation, a metamorphosis, and suddenly, listen, and suddenly the glory that was hidden and veiled in the cloak of his humanity burst forth revealing the full deity of Christ to the watching disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying to the disciples, this is who I am. You see, friends, the disciples get a glimpse of the true essence of the glorified Christ in some sort of a visible manifestation described again in verse 3. And his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. The comment that Jesus' clothes were whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them points to the otherworldly nature of this incident. This sort of shining white clothing is mentioned in the narratives of Jesus' resurrection. In many other places where we read of heavenly Beings, we, we find that they wear shining white clothing. According to the psalmist in Psalm 104, God wears light like a garment. Mark's language here describes the divine glory of Christ. For the doubting disciples, think about the context. For the doubting disciples struggling to understand who Jesus is, the curtain is pulled back and, as Sproul again so wonderfully described it, the glory that was hidden and veiled in the cloak of his humanity bursts forth, revealing the full deity of Christ to the watching disciples. I have no idea what it would have been like to be there. We're left with the descriptions we have throughout the scriptures. 
But this is something that struck me as I was meditating on what's happening here. And friends, here's what I thought. What an act of grace this is. What an act of grace this is. At this point in the story, we do not find the Lord Jesus frustrated with the slowness of the disciples to believe, ready to give up on them and move on. No, we, we find a patient and persistent Lord continually moving toward the disciples, revealing more and more, inviting and nurturing their faith. The transfiguration is both a revelation of the staggering glory of Jesus Christ and also a reminder of his patient pursuit of those he loves. Don't miss that. The transfiguration is both a revelation of the staggering glory of Jesus Christ and also a reminder of his patient pursuit of those he loves. First, Jesus reveals his true identity as the glorious Christ. Second, Jesus reveals his true identity as the one greater than Moses. Jesus reveals his true identity as the one greater than Moses. I'm primarily thinking about verses four through six, but really this whole text. Even if there were no reference to Moses in this text, we would have ample reason to read this account and immediately see the connections between Moses on Mount Sinai and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Consider for a moment the similarities. In Exodus 24, Moses goes with three named persons plus 70 elders up the mountain. Here, Jesus takes three disciples up the mountain in Exodus 34, Moses' skin shines when he descends from the mountain. Here, Jesus is transfigured and his clothes become radiantly white. In Exodus 23, God appears in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud. Here, as we will see, God appears in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud. In Exodus 24, a voice speaks from the cloud, and as we will see here, a voice speaks from the cloud. In Exodus 35, the people are afraid to come near Moses after he descends from the mountain. And here in our text later, we will see the people are astonished when they see Jesus after he descends from the mountain. Friends, the transfiguration is undeniable proof that the new and greater Moses has arrived. Again, we're talking about the identity of Jesus, that which the disciples were struggling to grasp, that which so many struggle to grasp. But here is undeniable proof that the new and greater Moses has arrived, the one who will deliver his people, not just from the slavery of Egypt, 
but from their greater enslavement to sin. And he will conquer their final enemy, giving them eternal victory by securing everlasting peace with God. The new and greater Moses is here. Now, we have more than allusions to Moses. We have the appearance of Moses. Look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Why, as Jesus is transfigured, do Moses and Elijah appear? Well, there are lots of different theories about this, but here's what I believe is going on. Elijah and Moses represent the law and the prophets. Together, they represent the body of Old Testament prophecy that all points to the Messiah. And with their appearing, it's like an alarm is going off, and that alarm signals this. The law and the prophets have been fulfilled. The promised Messiah has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. I love the important note of clarification that Danny Aiken offers in his commentary. He writes, This is not Mount Sinai all over again. No, this is a gospel mountain, not a law mountain. Here, the law of God and the grace of God converge in the one who is God incarnate and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promise, promises. And then Achan concludes with this plea. If that is true, and it is, then Achan says, look at him and believe his gospel. Look at him and believe his gospel. Oh, friends, that is a good and necessary appeal to each of us. Whether you're a believer or, you're, or you've not yet turned to Christ in faith, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and believe that he is the Son of God sent from heaven to save sinners. He is the one to which every part of the scriptures points. He alone has done everything that is necessary to forgive your sin and give you peace with God. Right? This is what we heard last week. And it is good news for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, the new and greater Moses, the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look to him and believe his gospel. Now, friends, back to our text. Please look at verse 5. We're the most impulsive and outspoken of the disciples makes a suggestion. And frankly, it's a terrible idea. 
So much so that Mark almost apologizes on behalf of Peter by simply saying, he didn't know what to say. Look at verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. You think? Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, to be fair... You and I would be terrified as well if we stood before a transfigured and glorious Jesus and then Moses and Elijah appeared out of nowhere. Not only would you be terrified, but if you're the sort of person that has to speak up when there is awkward silence, okay, raise your hand if that's you. Also feel free to point to someone if that is you. If you're the sort of, sort of person that has to speak when, when there's awkward silence, what idea would you have brought up that's better than making tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? Right? If you were put on the spot in that situation, what would you have said? And what is it that made this such a bad suggestion? Was it just that Jesus is like me and some of you and he believed that there was never a good reason to camp overnight in a tent? Well, no, friends, there is more to this than meets the eye. And in fact, Peter's error is profound. You see, his suggestion his suggestion would have lumped Jesus together with Moses and Elijah and put them all on the same level. This idea wasn't simply a bad idea, but it reveals that Peter still doesn't grasp who Jesus is. Sure, Moses and Elijah reflected the glory of God, but Jesus is the glory of God. Moses and Elijah spoke words from God, but Jesus speaks as God. To put it plainly, Jesus is in a class all by himself. And Peter and the disciples still don't fully understand this. You see, friends, it will not do for Jesus to simply be respected and even revered as a great teacher or a great prophet. He does not belong on the same level as the greatest men who have ever lived. No, he is God. He is to be worshiped and obeyed as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. First, Jesus reveals his true identity as the glorious Christ. Second, Jesus reveals his true identity as the one greater than Moses. And third, Jesus reveals his true identity as the beloved Son of God. We see this in the remainder of our text. 
on the heels of Peter's very bad proposal, look at verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. One Bible commentator reminds us that in the Old Testament, the cloud is often a vehicle of God's presence and the abode of his glory from which he speaks. This is precisely what is happening here as the cloud of God's presence descends and the voice of the Father speaks. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. These are the words spoken to Jesus at his baptism. Now they are spoken to the disciples. Why? Because the disciples need to understand who Jesus is. There can be no confusion about his true identity. So not only do the words of the Father mirror what was said at Jesus' baptism, but they're pulled straight from Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, it is clear that this phrase, you are my son, is used in reference to the messianic king from David's line. Again, all of this should remove any doubt about the identity of Jesus. You have heard me say many times before, and especially as we've been working through Mark's gospel, that if Jesus is who he claims to be, if Jesus is who he claims to be, then everything he says is of ultimate importance. And what are the last three words of verse 7? After the Father affirms the identity of Jesus, we find these three words. Listen to him. So it's as if the Father says, if he is my son, and he is, then everything he says is of ultimate importance. Listen to him. The disciples needed to understand who Jesus was, and as they embraced his identity, they also needed to accept his authority. They needed to listen to him. They needed especially to listen to what he was saying about the importance of his suffering. In fact, this is what verses 9 through 13 are all about. Look at the text with me. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And Jesus tells the disciples one last time to keep quiet until his resurrection but they still weren't grasping his claim that he would suffer and die and be raised to life again. So then a conversation about Elijah ensues. 
Now, what is this conversation all about? Let me, let me try to summarize it for you. The Old Testament scriptures taught that Elijah the prophet would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. The scribes, therefore, believed and taught that Elijah would come before the Messiah and would lead the people into a time of repentance and would anoint the Messiah for his messianic ministry. What does Jesus tell the disciples in verse 13? Elijah has already come. In Matthew's gospel, we find out that the disciples understood that the ministry of Elijah was fulfilled by John the Baptist. So again, Elijah, or John the Baptist, has already come and set the stage for the Messiah. Jesus then concludes in verses 12 and 13. The stage is set. The time is near. The Messiah will soon suffer many things and be treated with contempt. In fact, just like John the Baptist, the message of the Messiah will be rejected and he as well will be murdered. So friends, the disciples needed clarity regarding those two big questions. Who is Jesus and what must Jesus do? Who is Jesus? He is the promised Messiah come to save his people from their sin. What must he do? He must suffer and die and be raised in victory. This is the eternal plan of God. And this is the only way for sinners to be reconciled to God. As we look at our text, what was key for the disciples? In their doubt and confusion, what did they need to do? Well, if we could summarize in three words their greatest need, I would point you back to the end of verse 7. They needed to what? Listen to him. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then everything he ever said is of ultimate importance. There is a real sense in which this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. You listen to him. You listen to him and you obey him. Friends, you and I could spend our lives in the pursuit of so many different goals and dreams. But in the end, only one thing will matter. Did you listen to him? In fact, I thought about this just yesterday. Wouldn't it be wonderful, brother, if those speaking at your funeral simply said, this was a man who listened to Jesus. Wouldn't it be great, sister, if you reached the end of your life and this is what was scrolled across your tombstone? These simple words. She listened to Jesus. 
pray that the Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear the words of Christ, that we would be a people who listen to him. Let's pray.